Hello, I'm Marcus Brigstock and welcome to Breaking Good, the podcast rethinking separation and divorce brought to you by Forsters. Now, over the past few weeks, we've been looking at ways we can make divorce a kinder, less antagonistic process. And often the epicentre of that tension is what happens to the children, which is what or who we're going to be looking at today. As always, I'm joined by Joe Edwards. Hello, Joe. Hi there, Marcus. How are you? Good week? I have had a really good week. It feels like festive planning is getting ever more advanced, but uh, yeah. You've done it all last week. Well, I'd done the tree last week. This week it's been about the wreaths, the festive nails, which I've got going on, a bit of festive baking. Oh, they are festive. They're very festive. Have you made your own wreath? I have got both a professionally made wreath and then at the weekend the embarrassing spectacle of going to a wreath-making workshop. And Get I, I'm, in. I'm not very creative, I think it's fair to say, but there is something hanging up at home that I did make myself. <laughs> a circle of glue and glitter. A circle of something, yes. Beautiful, lovely. And this week we're also joined by Simon Blaine. Hello, Simon. Hi, Marcus. How are you? I'm very well indeed. Are you, you festive as well? Are you I'm ready? I'm festive and excited to be in the big smoke for the day. So yeah, I'm we're, feeling we're, slightly unleashed. Is this is the first time you've been in, it is in a while? It's the first time probably in a couple of months at least. So. Okay. So I, I've come to know Joe a little bit over the last few weeks. How long have you practised family law? I've practised family law since about 2000, so getting on a bit now. Okay. Heading for Heading for 20 years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of that in company with and partnership with Joe, uh, both at Forsters and somewhere we worked before. And um, yeah, good. So every day is a new day. Listeners can be reassured that these people do know what they're talking about, and where they don't, I'm sure they'll let us know very clearly. <laughs> we like to think we do. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think you probably do. Okay. So, what is the starting point when it comes to child arrangements after separation? And what's the usual? What you realise the longer you do this job is how different families are. Mm-hmm how different individ- you know, groups of individuals who've come together as a family or who've had children together and aren't a family, mm. how, how many varieties there are of that. And therefore, to try and impose a norm is, is not helpful. On the other hand, there are plenty of families that are, you know, reasonably, in inverted commas, normal, where you're yep. talking about, you know, um, a, a married couple who've had children, brought them up together and separated, mm-hmm. um, and one or both parents work. And I, I, I think... I think it's probably fair to say that there is something of a norm, which is, generally speaking, that children are going to have a main base and see plenty of the other parent. Mm. That's probably going to be around weekends and school holidays because that works for kids, but it's not a rule. No, of course. Uh, My assumption is that still predominantly children are more likely to be with their mother after a separation than they are with their father. But is is that am I behind the times? You're you're not behind the times in terms of that. Absolutely, is probably the norm. It's probably the norm though because that's what works for a lot of families. Mm. If it doesn't work because there are reasons why the mother isn't the best person for the child to spend most of their time with, then absolutely it doesn't have to happen. And there are also families who make real sharing work, mm. real sort of fifty fifty one week here, one week there. Mm-hmm. My my reservation about that is that you have to really think about whether that's best for the children or whether it's something that the adults are starting from their perspective and then and then working for the children. But I've seen it work really well, if, particularly if people uh, both live close to the school, mm. you know, that network of children's friends nearby, etc. 
young teenage children who can float quite happily from house to house and a, a reasonably uh, f a civil atmosphere mm. between the two households it can work brilliantly of course and changes over time I mean I'm talking from my own experience Absolutely. you know yeah. um, our divorce was 10 and a bit years ago and you know the, the children were sort of six and eight yep. thereabouts and their needs now uh, as they move through their teenage years are, are different and, and it, it's, a, it's a transition we've had to make gradually. Absolutely yeah. I mean that's something Simon and I always advise caution over because sadly for lots of parents who come and see us when they separate their children are very little and they think that one can have a blueprint that's going to last for the next 10-15 years and of mm. course as you rightly say Marcus the children's needs will change over that time. They will start articulating more clearly what their own views are. They will start having more after-school activities that they, they want to go to as well. So it is something of a starting point that we come up with. Now, sadly, in cases where there's conflict, I think what both of us see is parents who, over the period of 10, 15 years, will keep coming back to us every time they're having to make the transition to new arrangements because they simply can't agree. What, of course, we try to encourage is ongoing dialogue, working together, talking to the children to work out what's best for them. Mm. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I was going to ask next, do parents have complete control over their child arrangements. I mean, if they, between them, can come to an agreement, is there any reason why they can't just no. and make so it the, up for themselves? That, that's, that's what the vast majority of people do. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of people sort something out for themselves or, I suppose, you know, don't sort anything out properly and bumble ahead. But it's, yeah. it's probably a minority of people who take legal advice it, about yeah. it and who a smaller minority who would go to court about it. And that's quite a, it's a difficult topic. There's been quite a lot of recent debate about precisely what proportion of parents do go to court over arrangements for children. Yeah. It is quite small. Um, recently, the president of the family division said it was about 40%. That sounded quite high to some of us yeah. who are involved in this J work. Just to clarify that, Joe, when you mm -hmm. say go to court, you mean literally go to court, have it, overseen by a judge who makes a decision it, because a decision can't be reached another it, way. It, it, exactly so. Okay. So the vast majority of parents, as Simon rightly says, will reach their own arrangements. Um, they will either have an, an informal agreement and will just let things pan out on the ground. Mm -hmm. Some of them more sensibly, I think, in our view, would have a parenting plan, a document which actually records what the arrangements are going to be. Um, you're going to say this is like Turkey's not voting for Christmas, but of course we would say take some legal advice, ideally, if you're having a parenting plan. What we see as being some of the more thorny topics are perhaps issues around decision-making, how that's going to be exercised, particularly um, when one has new partners um, involved yep. on either side, introducing them to children, how that's going to operate in practice. So there are things which can be a little more tricky than just the pure child arrangements which ought to be discussed and mm. mapped out. So what are the more... Um, without getting into too many specifics, I know you can't legally, but what are the more unusual setups you've seen as to how people manage their kids? I think it comes back to what I said earlier about you begin to realise how many different sorts of situations children are born into in this country. And it, it's very easy to assume that both parents want to be involved with a child. But of course, there are plenty of situations where people have children and one parent very keen not to be involved perhaps because mm -hmm. you know the child came out of an extramarital affair or or, or something along those lines so the, there's there's all sorts of things that it's diff it's it's dangerous to make assumptions uh, and it's dangerous to to assume that things can't work there are 
hundreds of thousands, probably millions of children around the world who are brought up really happily by single parents, mm -hmm. you know. So um, all, all of that has to be factored mm -hmm. in and, and they take every which shape is my answer. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd, I'd agree with that. And where one has two parents who do both want to be involved, I've seen some really creative arrangements yeah. actually and people who've really made things work for their children. So there's been a lot written in the media about birds nesting, for example, this concept of the children keeping one home and parents moving in and out around the children. So the stability, which particularly works perhaps early on in the separation mm. before new homes have been acquired. I've seen a lot of my clients and couples I work with when they're arranging holidays, perhaps they'll go to one destination, get a villa, and one parent might spend the first week there with the children, and then the other parent come for the second week um, with the children. I've also seen quite often around um, Christmas time or special occasions like birthdays, parents who can work together so that those happy occasions are properly shared between them, perhaps both coming together with the children for Christmas Day mm. um, or for birthdays and giving the children that sort of experience. And then we also I think both have cases um, involving people who have slightly more unusual careers, erratic hours. I think that's something, Mark, as we've talked mm -hmm. about, where it's not quite as straightforward as saying let's have alternate weekends, four or five nights, plus Absolutely. half of the holidays. And there has to be a lot more creativity, more fluidity, more discussion between parents. And again, I really have seen that work, but it mm. does need that element of cooperation between parents to make it work for the children. Yeah, we touched on last week, you know, the, the foundation of a successful relationship, successful marriage in large part is communication and as yeah. we said last week actually a successful separation a successful divorce also involves communication then there may come a point where that's no longer necessary but certainly if there are children involved mm. you just have to talk and my job is you know six months of a tour three months in a in a theater thing mm. uh, two months of writing a while of doing nothing and twiddling my thumbs and worrying mm. you know so uh, we've had to arrange things are just by continuing to to communicate and that's not always easy but as you touched on there you know the the breakthrough moments where you start to be able to share birthdays and sort of share christmas mm. without it feeling incredibly awkward yeah. is is great it's really really brilliant but ours has been facilitated by at least a, a framework, a bit of a plan, which is what you mentioned. Yeah. I, th I think getting that combination is vital. As you say, having the communication is key. Having a basic framework at least is key. And the other element, and I think where I do see these plans start to go rise, perhaps where there isn't an acknowledgement, any appreciation on the part of the parent who needs that flexibility. So I think there has to be plenty of notice where schedules mm. are known in advance, so obviously communicating that, but equally showing the appreciation for the flexibility that perhaps has to be shown in those circumstances. Yeah, yeah. So in when you're mediating, Joe, do you also work in mediation, Simon? I've trained as a mediator and I've done some. I yeah. didn't love it, it has okay. to be said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fair enough, fair enough. So, uh, so yeah. but Joe, when you're working in, in mediation and there are children involved, presumably you have a you must have a, a different setup for every couple that, that comes to yes. you. Yeah. But also a different framework for different ages of children. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So I do a lot of children mediation. Um 
typically if I'm doing a children mediation if there's any complexity any element of conflict I'll involve a therapist as well mm -hmm. so I have a few quite difficult um, children mediations ongoing at the moment um, I can think of one in particular where we've had a therapist become involved in the process and we've agreed a framework for her to speak to the children so that their wishes and feelings can be heard within the process now very often that can be a really painful process both for mm both for the, the children involved, although of course that's very carefully managed, but more so for the parents and hearing the feedback coming out of that. So it is important that that opportunity be given um, in appropriate cases, and it can be very powerful when it works, obviously. So just practically, in that case, are you talking really about the children talking with a therapist and a therapist reporting back to you or perhaps even being in the mediation session to sort of advocate for the children. So I'm talking about the therapist actually feeding back to the parents themselves and so mm -hmm. that there are cases where children of a certain age decide for whatever reason they suddenly don't want to have a relationship with one parent mm. which of course is terribly difficult, terribly difficult to manage. It's usually my advice for the parent who finds themselves themselves in that situation not to force the issue through court. That's only going to make things more damaging for the child, mm -hmm. but to try to work therapeutically in mediation to understand what's going on. And so a therapist will come in, will very sensitively speak to the child in question, will then agree with him or her what they actually want to be fed back to mum and dad. It, it can be all of it, it can be none of it, it can be something in between. And then that person will sit down with the parents and explain what's been said. And then I become involved again as the lawyer mediator to try to work with that information and come up with a plan for, mm. for moving forward with child arrangements based on what's been said. It must be, I mean, obviously this stuff is painful, it's emotional, all the rest of it. But a circumstance in which a child is expressing a desire to effectively cut ties with a parent, you must be looking at people at the very edge of what's tolerable to them I mean how on earth do how on earth do you manage a, a, a sort of amicable arrangement when there's this much pain involved if you can even answer that I don't know I, I think you have to work through it don't you all the people concerned have have to work through it mm. in order to get themselves to a point where they're less stuck I mean I think what Joe was probably hinting at was it's it's unlikely simply to be that the child has flicked a switch in their head for no reason at all to come to that conclusion. There's going to be underlying issues in their relationship with one or both yeah. of their parents that's led to them finding themselves in that position. And unless that can be teased out and people mm -hmm. have a willingness to take on board some of that and address it, then there's a chance then there's a chance of, of moving forward and, mm -hmm. and recovering. Um, that's why mediation in that situation is so preferable because mm. the court process does the opposite it polarizes you you know mm. the, the the only the only option you have in a in a court process is to assume a position and defend it mm. uh, and and absolutely to recover then is really hard and mm. i'm sure both joe and i have been involved in in cases where you know a parent has been cut out of a child's life and the courts are trying to deal with it and however hard and sympathetically they try and deal with it that is a really cumbersome process mm, it is and can't bring about the internal change in the people concerned breaking good rethinking separation and divorce brought to you by forsters 
Has the application of the law shifted? Um, I'm thinking back to when we regularly saw Fathers for Justice dressed as superheroes, uh, you know, protesting in whatever way. And they were, it was such an odd thing because the protest form was quite a mockable one. But as a dad, I remember thinking, I wonder like where you're at. Because mm. I remember when, when we when we separated, it was actually some of the best advice I got was that young children particularly uh, struggle with geography in ways that adults don't. Mm. They really struggle with distance and, and place. And I was advised to be visible effectively. And so I managed to get a flat that was not quite in sight of their school, but it was literally moments from their school. And so... And that was very much decided on the basis that the children know that's where dad is, even though I was off touring a lot of the time and stuff like that's where dad is. And I, I believe that was helpful. But uh, anyway, back to my original question, has the application of the law changed or have Fathers for Justice sort of moved on? What's happened? I know that this is something which different listeners will have different perceptions of. And it's yep. a really difficult topic. My own view for what it's worth and my own experience is that in the past 20 plus years I've been practising, there has been something of a shift in the way in which judges approach these cases. I think, as Simon has said, some of that is driven by the fact that lots of parents have changed the way that they do parent pre-separation, so that is reflected in outcomes. I know that there is a lot of disappointment in certain quarters that we don't have a starting point of 50-50 shared care. Again, my own personal view is that wouldn't be appropriate, that children aren't CD collections. This is about what's right in each and every case. So I do think there has been something of a shift. Doubtless, it will be said, there's more that, that can and should be done. I still think there's work to be done around how we enforce these orders once they are made by the court in cases where there are orders. And a lot of concern is expressed by by parents of both sex, but particularly by fathers, I suspect, that even once they've got the orders, sometimes they don't have teeth and it takes a little while for the court to enforce them. So that's clearly something that arguably should be should be looked at in a mm. bit more detail. Yeah, I mean, the application of it is enormously difficult because if you're sort of... If you're putting the children first, you can't get involved in just showing up and thumping on the door and saying, right, get in the car. It's too upsetting Yeah. for, for them. So it's sort of easy then to be on the back foot and say, well, ah, this is too awkward, isn't it? Exactly. And and Joe's absolutely right. Of course, people would very much like it that if they knew that they got a court order, a piece of paper saying that you will see the children every Saturday at seven mm. o'clock, that you could, you know, go to court to make that happen. But the practicalities of what making that happen looks like uh, when you begin thinking them through as a parent, like you've just been mm. doing, uh, is is another is very another thing. Absolutely. It's really, truly difficult. And it can lead in the worst circumstances to you know appalling decisions of being I'm thinking of you know child abduction people being removed mm -hmm. taken out of the country and stuff like that I remember being very startled I I took the kids away on holiday a couple of years ago and arrived in Cape Town uh, to be told that I uh, where's your letter yeah. where's your letter of permission from yeah. the mum and initially I was like oh this is the last thing we need it's been an overnight flight and blah 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 and then I thought I'm really glad this exists yeah actually yeah, it was absolutely. very inconvenient for us but yeah, yeah. No, yeah. that, that, that's absolutely right and South Africa there is that particular nuance there but 
as you say, desperate people sometimes do desperate things. And of course, where they're taking legal advice, if there are people who want to remove children temporarily for a holiday or indeed permanently if they're moving, we will always say to them, well, that's about negotiation with the other parent. And if they won't agree, then potentially court and making an application. But sometimes people do just take children. Of course, that's a criminal offence. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are ramifications of that. Yeah, mm. take children or, or, or take children with a with the genuine intention of returning and then something happens yes that makes that hard or impossible for them to do yeah um if so, yeah. if uh, this is a, a sort of theoretical and maybe unhelpful we'll move on quickly if it is unhelpful but if you've got a situation where a couple have agreed the framework for co-parenting after a separation and then as is often the case circumstances change perhaps new partner and all the rest of it but if circumstances change so dramatically that one of them needs or wants to move away can the law does the law help with that do you mean move away within this country I mean both. or move away I mean away, both. away you know i mean if if in our circumstances if either my ex-wife or i moved more than sort of 2 hours apart that would already be an absolutely colossal problem uh, moving four or five hours apart would be worse and out of the country, as far as I'm concerned, for either of us would be mm. catastrophic. Yeah. And so the the answer to your question is, if, if the mood is abroad, and abroad would include Scotland for these mm-hmm. purposes, then uh, you would need either the other person's permission, the other parent's permission, or a court order. Mm-hmm. It's called an application for leave to remove, remove your child from this country to go and live in another country. And those are very difficult but remarkably common cases given the makeup of the population of England, particularly of London at mm. the moment. So many people with foreign connections mm. uh, one way or another. A move within um, England is on the face of it not something that you need the other parent's permission to do or a court order. But when you start thinking through, as you've said, obviously it would be calamitous on lots of levels. But also it would usually involve, assuming the age of the children, a change of school mm. um, and that sort of thing. And and it, it's on that basis, isn't it, that you can try and stop it if you're mm. the, the other parent mm. um, and try and get orders saying that the child should be based with you rather than with the person who's made the unilateral decision to, to move. Mm. Um, but they are some of the hardest. They're cases. really difficult cases, and I think particularly with COVID, those what we call internal relocations, people wanting to move out to the countryside from the cities within mm. the UK or w- within England and Wales particularly, are becoming more commonplace. I've seen lots of my previous clients come back to me this year to say that they want to move or their ex has now decided that he or she wants to move and they've got really settled child arrangements in place and they're wanting advice about what they can actually do. Now, one can be quite creative. I mean, I had a case last year where we successfully prevented um, a move for various reasons. But in that case and in all of my cases, I look at, well, what would it look like if the parent who wants to move did go and the child stays with you or the parent does move with the child but you buy a little bolt hole down there? Mm-hmm. Is there somewhere halfway, a halfway house? So one can be quite creative. But I think with both those cases and the international couples that we work with, they are really challenging because sometimes you might have a a truly shared care arrangement which is going to be completely thrown out the window by this plan. And more often than not, it's a really well-motivated, well-thought-out plan. It's not motivated by malice. It can be a lifestyle change. There might be a new job. There might be a new partner. It might be somebody returning to where they actually are from originally. But it can be heartbreaking for the two parents involved. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I was very, very newly qualified, 
terrified. I remember doing a case involving a baby who's only six months old and a mum who wanted to move, it was either to Australia or New Zealand. Mm. And, you know, the judge, we did get to a final hearing, they couldn't agree, it was so bitterly fought and the mum got permission to go. And all I can remember is this young father just sobbing in court and the judge saying, but, you know, don't worry, you can fly there two or three times a year. And he said, but I, I can't afford to you know, who's earning quite a small amount a year. And he said, I won't be able to afford to do that. And so they are absolutely heartbreaking, mm. those cases. Yeah. And and my uh, my first instinct hearing that as well is how on earth can the law make that decision and just decide that you know, someone's desire to be in another country overrides uh, um, what's more than just desire, which is the, the, the duty and the responsibility that goes with parenthood. Yeah. And I think it's, it's fair to it? say the law has probably moved on quite considerably since I actually did mm. that case a number of years ago. It used to be terribly easy, didn't it, Simon? Yeah. For typically the mum, not always the mum, if she wanted to move overseas post-separation with a child, she would invariably get permission. It has become more difficult in recent years. It's something a court looks a lot more carefully at both sides of the argument and what what's going to be the impact on the person who wants to go, if they're forced to remain, if they're unhappy, what effect will that have on the child, particularly if that's mm. the primary carer, versus the loss of relationship potentially with the parent who's staying behind. It's a really difficult tussle for any judge looking at these cases. I mean, what, what you can say is the one thing the court will want to know is that the child's relationship with the other parent will survive and be preserved mm. and one of the things that you need to think about if you're the person who wants to move is you need to go out of your way to behave in a way that will reassure the court that you're somebody who can be trusted because you know you talked about Joe talked about enforcement earlier you know you got this piece of paper saying okay my child lives in France but mm. You know they're going to come and see me uh, on the easy jet every every third weekend or something mm -hmm. but actually making that happen um, across borders is even harder than it is making something this happen year in this country yeah. must have been horrendous. and so Absolutely. the court is going to be want to be reassured that the parent who goes is somebody who can be trusted to maintain that to maintain that relationship if they haven't got that reassurance it's very hard mm -hmm. to be allowed to go but as as you've just said obviously you know no doubt there are dozens, hundreds of families who this year has completely turned that on its head. Absolutely. Yeah. And then of course you also bring in the wishes and feelings of the child concerned as well. So I was thinking earlier about Madonna and Guy Ritchie and infamously Rocco Ritchie who yes. suddenly decided about four years ago that he wanted to go and live with Dad in London. Yeah. Now as I understand it in that case, that, that was the view that he was very strongly expressing. Mm. So you had a New York judge saying on the other side of the pond, well I'm going to make an order requiring the return of the child um, in practical terms, never enforced because yeah. the reality was he didn't want to go back. And then ultimately the judge in New York, as I understand it, saying, well, come on, parents, you need to try and agree something here for the sake of the child, mm. which is what they then went on to do and reached a private agreement that entailed Rocco Ritchie staying in London. So there is also that element, of course, that inappropriate cases, particularly where the child is 10 or older, will also be brought into the equation. Yes. So jurisdiction is a big is a big thing. If you know, if people are living in a different country or whatever, yes. or somebody moves, then there could be two different legal processes at play at the same time. They can. And, you know, one of the saving graces over the last few years is that the within the EU, there have been quite good integration you know, EU regulations that 
set out how family court orders about arrangements for children and mm. arrangements for paying money um, should be enforceable across the EU. If you've got an order made in an English court, so long as you follow the right formalities, you should be able to enforce it in Austria or mm. Slovakia or wherever. And of course, one of the big unknowns <laughs> is whether that survives um, Brexit and in what form it survives Brexit. It probably mm. doesn't. It probably gets replaced with something else. Um, Sunlit uplands, though. Sunlit uplands? No. Massive sunlit uplands. <laughs> oven, oven, Let's not forget that. This oven, will be oven better. ready, I think, aren't we? I think we're oven ready. <laughs> we're Let's oven not. Ready. Absolutely. There's, a, Absolutely. there's a, whole other, a whole other area there. But but it is, uh, you know, on a, on a very serious note, changes in the law and jurisdiction and stuff like that. I mean, this is it's scary for people. I just want to urge people to listen, if you haven't already, to the last episode we recorded about no-fault divorce. Uh, because it has such a big bearing on this. You know, there will still be feelings involved in a separation and possibly anger and recrimination and all the rest of it. But legally, some of the heat will be taken out of that. So do have a listen to the last episode we recorded um, because I think it has a big bearing on this. I was going to say, thanks for the plug, Marcus. Um, but, But yes, it absolutely does because... What we see so often is people who come into us, they're, they're feeling really upset, understandably, about the circumstances of the breakdown of a relationship. They then learn that either they're going to have to petition for divorce based on the other person's fault or they're being petitioned based mm. on their own fault. So suddenly temperatures are sky high. The next thing we then talk about is what are the immediate arrangements for the children? And it's tempered by their feelings about the divorce suit and they don't necessarily approach things in a child-focused way. So by having the no-fault system, which Simon knows that I've banged on about for years and years, um, it hopefully will make all the difference because the worst thing for children is being exposed to conflict. And I say that about children of any age. Funnily enough, I was talking to a colleague who I won't name after the podcast last week, and she had listened to it. It's not just my mum. Um, (laughs) And she said that her parents got divorced when she was 24, and she still feels, you know, the, the aftershock of that. And it, it was really difficult. So I appreciate we're talking here rightly about young children, but mm. it can be children of any age you need to think about. OK, well, let's talk about the tragic, the worst case scenario, I think, where a parent is being denied a relationship with a child after separation. For, I mean, this is inevitably a, a heavy conversation this <laughs> week, but uh, what are the reasons where one parent might seek to deny access to another? I think there are various reasons, aren't there, Simon? And every case, again, is different. And I was trying to work out in my own mind what what the categories actually are here. In my experience, I think there are four main things. Sometimes it is about control and one parent wanting to control the other, perhaps if there is anger around the circumstances of the separation. And so one needs to try and work through that and be child focused. And those may be the cases where if one can't do it quickly enough, there has to be some court intervention to move things along. Sometimes in my experience, it's about anxiety whether that's well-founded or not. So I've seen plenty of cases where one parent, typically a mum, not always a mum, is really anxious about a child spending time, perhaps sometimes for the first time, fully on their own with the other parent. And depending upon the age of the child, there might be concerns about nappy changing, bottle feeding, 
getting them to school on time, you know, whatever the reasons may be. Those cases for me, it's more about therapeutic intervention. It's sometimes, particularly in mediation, I'll suggest, well, why don't we trial some things on the ground, see mm. how they go, and then you, we can come back and talk about that a little bit more. Thirdly, and Simon and I think have both seen these, there are cases where there are genuinely serious welfare concerns, and those are the cases which will need some court intervention and will need to be investigated um, and it's only once those have been looked at then thought can be given to what the appropriate arrangements will be. Um, and then finally for me sadly in some cases there is parental alienation. You know, I, I've got a couple of cases at the moment where my client is saying he or she think that the other parent is trying to alienate the children against them and the children are coming for contact and making very strange comments about their experience in that parent's house, about wanting to be back with the other parent. And again, I mean, that could be a whole podcast of itself, parental alienation. I think it's something which I know there is dissatisfaction out there about how the courts manage parental alienation cases. I do feel as though huge strides are being made, have been made from the professionals involved about how we do manage the cases. But my experience, I'm bound to say, is that it can be too slow a process to identify and try and tackle um, the causes and, and what's going on. I've had some very difficult parental alienation cases. I know, Simon, you're the same. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, it sounds like a broken record, but I think you, ha you have to come back again, though, to the fact that there are so many different uh, sets of possible circumstances that making, making assumptions is, is, is dangerous. There are also cases where there are very valid reasons why somebody is extremely concerned about mm. the other parent having uh, having time with the child. Joe talked about them, you know, the ones where it needs to be a proper welfare evaluation about whether it's safe for that individual to have children in, in your care and in their care. And, you know, you, you can feel as a parent that you... You're, you're a lone voice, you know. You you know that person. You were in a relationship with them. You 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 know you know things that they did to you, which make you very worried about what they might do mm -hmm. to their children. Now, whether that amounts to a reason for them not seeing uh, the other parent or not, that's that's something that needs to be tried out and tested. Mm. Um, but it's inevitably a it's inevitably a long process because the truth of what you're saying has to be tested, and then you have to. Um, you know, you have to work on rebuilding a relationship, hopefully, with the other parent. Mm. Um, so they, they, they are horrendously difficult. Yeah, of course. Breaking Good. Rethinking separation and divorce. Brought to you by Forsters. Now, you don't just deal with separating couples. You also help couples who want to start a family, which uh, I hope is a, a, a slightly brighter topic than the the ends of uh, of families but um adoption surrogacy biology and the law um yeah there's a there's a can exciting. of worms to open towards the sure. end of a podcast <laughs> yeah, yeah. um yes so some absolutely some of my very uh most enjoyable cases have been cases involving surrogacy have so, you seen little fires everywhere we talked a lot about mrs doubtfire last week and I think it's important for people to contextualise these conversations we're having with some drama and or comedy. <laughs> have you seen Little Fires Everywhere? I have not. What is Little Fires Everywhere? I Marcus? recommend you watch it. There's a little bit of facial overacting that you'll need to get past. Oh. Uh, but it deals... <laughs> but it you're deals, not in it. I'm not yet in... Uh, in uh, Hopefully the next season, but, you know. Uh, it deals very specifically with, uh, with a, a case of... Um, 
I'm trying to avoid spoilers here, but um, a surrogate mum oh. ch- suddenly changing her mind. Oh right, that's oh, so interesting it's, because it is that interesting. is, and it's good. It's a it's a good drama. That is the question that one is always asked: What happens if the mum changes mm, her mind? Yes. Isn't it? Yeah. And there are I haven't come across any cases where mum has changed changed her mind, and there are very few, if any, reported cases. I think there might be one, but that was probably more to do with some. Uh, facts emerging about the uh, commissioning couple that she might not have been aware of yeah. when she started the process. Mm. <laughs> um, let's, yes. let's leave it at that. Yeah, uh, sure. But actually, the the women who agree to be surrogates uh, are often some of the most um, dedicated, amazing women who are prepared to put themselves through this in order to enable another couple to have a child um, sometimes if they're in another country in, in this country it's illegal to to pay somebody to be a surrogate so people doing it in this country are pretty universally doing it out of mm-hmm. kindness love often friendship mm. um, abroad sometimes there's a there's a financial element to it but even then it's not a decision you take in order to make a few thousand dollars I don't mm. think um, or unlikely to be a decision mm-hmm. you take often it, it's because you genuinely got altruistic desire to enable other people to have a family who couldn't um, otherwise for biological reasons or because they're in a same sex relationship or whatever it might be mm-hmm. and one of my closest friends used a surrogate and now oh, my, wow. my two little god children who are four years old twins yeah. um yeah she's got but it, it's Wait, remarkable a surrogate carried twins for a somebody a surrogate carried twins mercy yeah. me i know i know but wow. they're gorgeous no so. financial settlement but i hope <laughs> i hope someone was very very well looked after yes. what an extraordinary thing to yeah, do for somebody absolutely i mean the most selfless thing you can imagine somebody yeah. doing yeah yeah yeah, yeah. wow and, and when it works well you 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 know i'm sure your friend will have done this making sure that that person remains in some way a part of those children's lives yes. gets updates yes. gets photos absolutely you know the the work that you need to do planning a life story with those children so mm-hmm. that you can sit down with them when the time is right to explain how they came into the world show them photos mm-hmm. show them their birth certificate mm-hmm. um it, it, it's all really fascinating stuff and when you when you get a parental order certainly in the high court quite often the judges are keen that the baby is is there mm-hmm. uh, and that there are photos taken so that that Which mo- certainly were in my friend's yeah, case so that that yeah. moment then goes in in the child's yeah. life story book yeah. so you get the judge bouncing the baby on on his or her knee oh, uh, nice. up on the you know up on the raised D- dais at the front dare of the I court. say one of the few happy occasions perhaps in the family court yeah, yeah. when these hearings take yeah. place but really a memorable occasion forgive me putting you on the spot what advice would you first give to divorcing parents is there a way of summarizing this our main advice as we've said i think throughout this podcast is put your children front and center of all of your discussions they are the most important piece in all of this try to put your own emotions to one side Um, try to avoid subjecting the children to conflict i've said already that's the worst possible outcome for them and try to agree a script for what you're going to say to the children and when you're going to say it to them I think, you know, really important that the children should know it's okay to love both parents, to want to spend both time with their parents, to have Mm. lovely holidays with both parents, not to feel they have to keep secrets from one house because they've just had a lovely time with the other parents. So 
I think we've both seen the really damaging cases where parents get this so very wrong. And dare I say, I always think it's not rocket science. And I really enjoy it where I do occasionally meet the children of clients a long time after the event. And when I see these really happy, well-adjusted kids Mm. who clearly have, have come through the other side and are having a relationship with both parents, that's what we want to see ultimately in our cases. So there's quite a lot in there, but as I say, I don't think any of it is rocket science. Mm-hmm. Just keep the children at the centre. I think we've pretty much run out of time. I would just give one last piece of advice, and that is if you are playing charades over the Christmas period, don't give anyone Kramer versus Kramer. <laughs> it really is so difficult to guess uh, because the first and third words are the same, and no one's happy when you get there. So, really, really worth it. I'd like to see you mime versus. As well. I know, so <laughs> tricky, so tricky. <laughs> well, that's all we've got time for today. I've been Marcus Brigstock. Thank you very much to Joe Edwards and Simon Blaine and our producer Sophie Black. Next time we'll be discussing litigation or how to avoid it, importantly. And if you have any questions or thoughts, do please email us at family at forsters.co.uk or tweet us at Forsters Family and we'll try to answer any queries that you have. Until then, thank you very much, Joe and Simon, and thanks to you for listening. Thank you.